James chapter 1, verses 13 through 17. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. A couple weeks ago, I taught from the opening verses in James chapter 1 concerning the reality of trials in the Christian life. And according to James, we saw that trials are meant to be viewed by believers as tests. In fact, the word trial in the original means test. And that idea of Christians enduring tests is also what today's text is about. It's just really a continuing of what James has already been talking about. And I titled the last sermon from verses 2 through 4 Enduring Trials. And today's sermon on verses 13 through 17, I've decided to simply title Enduring Temptations. And as we look at the, the reality of temptation, In the Christian life, I want us to see how it is interrelated with the context already laid out about trials. There's a distinction to be made between trials and temptations, and yet by the same token, the two in James' context are actually the same concept. In fact, what makes it even more interesting, or maybe even more complicated, is that they're actually the same word. The same word. And so in this passage, uh, test and tempt, or trial and temptation, are actually the same. In fact, really quickly, what I'd like to do is is sort of look back in the beginning of this chapter and, and show you that test is actually a very prominent theme in James. Let's just go back a little bit. Back to verse 2, which we saw last time. James said, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials. Or that could be translated tests. So there's test right there. Verse 3, he continues, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And there it is again. Uh, You will meet tests, and it is testing of your faith. And it appears again uh, several verses down to verse 12. This is the verse right before the one in our text today. James writes this Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. That's test again. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. Uh, now, all this to say that testing is a major theme in our text. And he's not just jumping from one topic and then totally just switching the topic altogether. He's continuing a theme in this passage. Trial and temptation are the same word, which is test. So a big question is, why the use of the different terms in our English translation? Why is it temptation and tempt in our passage but test in the prior verses if they're the same word. Why say temptation instead of test? Well, we're going to do our best to sort of sort that out as we go through with the flow of our text. So I want to delve straight in. I want to delve straight into these verses and we'll, we'll see the connections. And as we do, my plan is to highlight three things that James wants you and I to understand regarding temptation or the tests. Three things, and these will be the three points of my sermon. First, James wants us to understand the source of temptation. The source 
of temptation. Two, James wants us to understand the sequence of temptation. The sequence of temptation. And third, James wants us to understand the sham of temptation. The sham of temptation. Source, sequence, sham. That's going to be our our three points today. So uh, let's begin with the, the source of temptation. This is a fitting place for James to start to show where this all begins. Looking in verse 13, James writes this, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. Now I want to make sure in looking at the source of temptation in these verses that we remember once again the flow of our text. This is about testing. James has stated that as believers, we can joyfully meet tests of various kinds, trials, because the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and this leads to sanctification, maturity, or what he calls being complete and lacking nothing. Then verse 12 comes along, And he says that the one who remains steadfast under the test, this one has assurance to receive the crown of life. In other words, don't fall when you go through life's tests. Prove your faith, prove yourselves belonging to Him by passing the tests, by remaining steadfast and faithful. And in doing this to his audience, James addresses the mindset of those who have to endure life's tests. And this is where our translation for test is replaced with the word tempt. This is the mindset that James has as he addresses this issue, and he sees it as a source issue. I want us to sort of look at how it would read if we were to change those words tempt with the word test. So let's just try this out. This is a more literal translation. If we didn't change it to tempt, it would read like this. Let no one say when he is tested, I am being tested by God. For God cannot be tested with evil, and he himself tests no one. Now, this is where some good and difficult questions should come up in your mind if you were to read it that way. Some questions should be popping up. For First of all, the main question that we're going to address right now, it would seem perplexing that James would explain up until this point that we have these appointed tests for our faith, which, you know, presumably is God's providence, and then suddenly state, that we shouldn't say God is testing us. Like you're going through tests, but don't say God is testing you. What's what's that mean? More perplexing, he even goes further and states as a basis, he himself tests no one. And that's the rub. Uh, Because we know from Scripture that God does test His children. That's been the implicit point that James is making as we've seen about trials testing us. We know that the God's hand of providence has to be in there. But even without that implicit text, we know explicitly throughout Scripture, God does test His people. I mean, you can go all the way to the beginning in the book of Genesis. Abraham is tested by God. Israel is tested by God. To King Hezekiah, there's a verse that literally says, God says to him, I have tested you to see what was in your heart. Even Jesus tested his disciples. There's a case in in John 6 where he's about to feed the multitudes and and Philip comes up to him and and Jesus asks where they can get bread. And then John 6 verse 6 says this note, he said this to test him for he himself knew what he would do. Scripture is clear. God tests His people. So, what are you talking about, James? (laughs) What do you mean God tests 
No one. And this is where we'll see why the translators chose to use tempt. So let's, let's sort of delve into this. And it's going to get a little theological, but I'm going to, I promise I'm going to bring it back to its practical implications for us, and it will be richer when we do. It's, it's here that we need to consider in what manner the word test is used. And this is just a good rule of thumb, by the way, when you're reading the Bible. When you don't understand something in the Bible, the problem is not with the Bible. The problem is somewhere in our understanding, and we need to have the posture to say, if I don't have light now, I need to keep reading, or maybe God will reveal it someday. But the problem is not in the text. And so, what does this mean? I think we do have help, and we can understand why translators felt comfortable giving us the word Tempt as a distinguished term for test. So why does it say God tests no one? And why do we change the word in these verses to tempt? Well, it's important to point out that the word test can be communicated in a different sense depending on its use. This is the case with many types of words. If you look carefully in our verses here, you would actually see that it's used in a different way than it's used earlier. Earlier, it's used more objectively or externally. Just, it's the concept of test. Whereas in these verses, it's used experientially. Or you might say internally. So the word test can be used in an objective outward sense. Like there's a test, outside observer looking at it. Or it can refer to the experiential, experiential inward sense. The one who is in the test is going to view the test and describe it differently. Not just referring to the concept, but referring to it as it is acting upon them. And by definition, if a test is being acted upon you, it's giving you a challenge against your will. This is what a test is. It's against a natural inclination that you have, seeing if you will overcome that and take some other action. A harder action. In this case, the right action. In this sense, commentators point out, test here has a more negative sense to it because it's not just about two equal kinds of options. I can go, I can go this way, I can go that way. It's not like that. Rather, it's between one way that is easy or natural and one way that would be hard. And in the case of James, what is easy for us is evil. That is the anthropology of the Bible. Man's natural tendency post-fall is toward evil. What is hard and what requires steadfast faithfulness is obeying the Lord. Submitting to Him does not come naturally. Let me put it this way. I'm just going to keep fleshing this out a bit. In the objective sense of the word, you can give someone a test or observe a test, but not be affected at all by the test. The experience of the test is impersonal to you. It's outward. You're the observer. But for the person being tested upon, the one experiencing the test, the test is not merely an outward thing to observe. Rather, it's something to feel. Rather, the test is much more inwardly personal. And there's a tug being made upon the will. And the tug can go one way, which is naturally toward evil. Or, there could be a decision to do what is good. And in that struggle, that testing of our inclination to do evil and what would be natural to us, there's a need to overcome with steadfast faith. With endurance. Because endurance assumes there's a struggle. And in this sense, we distinguish testing as temptation. From that inward sense, with that tug, it is temptation. We're actually given further light on this. We don't have to do all this outward speculation here. The text actually gives us some light in James here 
when it talks about God. It talks about God Himself being tested. And notice that James doesn't just say, don't say God is testing you because He tests no one. But look more closely. Look at an intentional point he makes. James says, God Himself cannot be tested with evil. With evil is the key to understanding why it is tempted. In other words, of course, God can be tested just in that objective sense. I mean, in Scripture, His people test Him. He even says, do not test the Lord your God. God can be tested in an observable sense, but He doesn't have that same inward pull. In an experiential sense, He's not tempted. He's not in the test feeling the tug of, should I go naturally evil? Because there is no evil in God. And so in that sense, as a test, it's not temptation for God. God cannot be tempted like we can. I hope that clarifies a bit, but it also brings another big question just to add to the complications here, another big question might have come up in your mind when I said that God cannot be tempted and when James says it, which is, if God cannot be tested in the sense of experiential temptation, that tug, as we've defined, how does that square with Jesus, the God-man, being tempted? It's a good question. It's a hard question. And I'm going to actually ask you to put a pin in that for just a bit here, actually more than just a bit. I'm going to come back to that actually in my second point of the sermon because I think the next verses will actually give us some clues to understanding that. So for right now, hold on to that one about Jesus being tempted. Don't go to the bathroom during the second point. Just kidding. Having made clarification about the use of the word test as temptation, I want us to see the thrust of what James is warning about. And this is the practical consideration for us. What is the warning? What's the point here? We know the theological point he's made, that God in His nature has no sinful inclination toward evil, and that He can't be tested in that sense because He has no struggle of evil to overcome. Now we need to see the practical implication of that theological truth. What is James trying to get at? And I think it's this. When you're tested in this life and you have that tug and you are tempted, you need to understand God is not the source of your inward corruption. God is not the source of how you are tempted toward evil. He doesn't have an evil inclination and He's not the active agent of it in you. I'm going to confess that's a hard truth to wrap our minds around. I don't think we can actually completely comprehend this truth because we confess that God is sovereign, even sovereign over evil. And that's been confessed by the church for centuries. We confess that as a church. But likewise, theologians have always been careful on this point to teach the compatible truths of Scripture. Yes, God is sovereign over evil, yet we have always maintained He is not the author of sin. They are compatible truths. Again, when we see truth in Scripture and we have a problem on our hands, so to speak, quote-unquote, the problem is not in Scripture or in the truth. It is often in us and our fallibility, our, our limitations. Because Scripture is clear on the one hand that God is sovereign over evil. He's sovereign over all the tempters over Satan and the demons and the world and us. And yet, within His providence, He can do that, He can ordain that in a passive sense. Leaving active agents like fallen angels and fallen man to just perform their own devices. And whenever we see in Scripture God ordaining evil or bringing it to pass, it's often in that passive sense. God leaves people to their own evil inclinations. And they're culpable for their sin, not Him. 
Again, it, it, it surpasses our understanding. But it is proper in how we are to understand God's sovereignty and our responsibility. We have to keep both of those as Scripture teaches them. And this is where James directs us to the true source. He's not just giving a theological lesson. He's actually giving something practical for us to consider. And you might expect him to say, don't say God is the source. Satan is the source. The demons are tempting you, but he doesn't do that. And James has a theology of demons. He mentions them in the book. He doesn't even mention spiritual warfare at all in these verses. Although it's true in some sense as involved agents. James gets to the root of the matter and says that the source of temptation is in us. He's not tempted with evil, but we are. Look at verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Now this is actually sort of a bridge to my second point in the sermon, but it's also sort of the end of my first point. And so we're going to sort of dwell here for a bit. The verse makes it clear that each person is tempted when they themselves are lured and enticed. Uh, This inclination towards sin, uh, present in the experience of the test, which we call temptation, is within ourselves. We're responsible agents. And that's an important truth to have in Scripture. You are responsible for your actions. So what's the point? It still kind of sounds like we're being theological, but there's actually a very practical point James is addressing in the attitude of the believer. In the mindset of one who is seeking to endure temptations, the point is this. Beware lest you shift from faith in God to accusing God. Beware lest you shift from faith in God to accusing God. I think that's the point. When I'm tested, there's a strong tendency in me to harden my heart and give in to evil because God shouldn't have put me through this in the first place. I mean, I, this is the way I am. What did He expect? He's sovereign, right? Well, I, this is my makeup. And there's a lure, a temptation to sin. And although we may not say it, when we respond in trials or tests in a spirit of grumbling or or anger or complaining or worrying or anxiety, anything other than remaining faithful and steadfast, we're in fact actually accusing God. And that's convicting. Because we all do it. We may not say it, but we are in fact, at the end of the day, accusing God. We're like Adam in the garden. It's this woman that you gave me. Well, if you hadn't given me that woman, I wouldn't have eaten the fruit. That's the same thing. We're like our father Adam. Now in this context of James, he's primarily dealing with sufferings in mind and and different issues in the church related to trials. And trials give an occasion to tempt, oftentimes, that's usually the case, uh, when trials come in our lives, there's a tendency to want to harden ourselves or react in just turning to evil. But I would also say that this can apply to any temptations in our lives. So I, I want to say in the text here, I do think it's connected to trials, but really temptations of all kinds are a trial. They're all a test. I just say that because I don't want us to just think that temptation is only connected to life circumstances when they're hard. Because sometimes temptations come when life is going really well. And we're tempted to forget God. And so temptations come in all different forms. But the issue is the same. Don't blame God. Don't put God on trial in your heart. But understand the true source. 
by looking in the mirror. And own that the source of any hardening or choice for evil is within us. That's what James wants you to understand first. In this whole temptation and the struggle you're having, first of all, it's you who is tempted. It's you who is the source. And having laid out the responsibility that each of us have, and we are freed from the power of sin in Christ, we are able, by His grace, to overcome temptation. In doing that, and in being responsible to do that, even when tests come, it would help to have a game plan, a sequence, which is why I think he now unpacks what exactly happens in temptation and how do I responsibly endure it. And so the next point here is the sequence of temptation. James wants you and I to understand the sequence of temptation, where you are in it, and where you get out from it. After explaining that we're lured away and enticed by our own desire, he continues in verse 15. Look at what he says. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. That's a sequence. And this is helpful for us because in the midst of temptation, we're not really thinking about logically where we are and what's exactly happening. We're like the fish going for the bait on the hook and it just looks good. And we're thinking with our senses. And that's actually fitting imagery here for James. It's actually using that hunting kind of language to be lured away into a trap. I like the way John MacArthur put this, that the fish thinks he's getting a meal, but he doesn't consider that he may become one. So it's helpful to have a sequence. What's exactly happening before you even enter into temptation? What should you expect Because it's really always the same. How can we have this firmly in our minds? And so, I'm not going to take too long to identify the sequence, but I I do want to look at this point by point. And I even made a little graphic where I'm going to show it to you in arrows. It's funny, this took the longest point part of my sermon prep, just figuring out the PowerPoint, but I'm going to make it as fancy as I could. Because I think visually it helps to see this sequence in order. Here are the verses on top. I'm going to correspond to each point to a part in these verses and show the sequence that happens in temptation. Number one, where it all begins in verse 14, each person is led by desire. So number one in the sequence, desire. It begins there. Desire. We're all human. We all have various desires in our makeup. And I want to point out that they're innocent desires. There's no sin yet in the sequence. We have desires given to us by God. And temptations begin with our innocent, God-given desires. And I call these innocent because James himself is going to say soon that sin is born at some point and it's not born yet in this part of the verses. Somewhere along the way, sin occurs, but at first, the desire is not sin. And I want to point that out because some of us may need the reminder that temptation is not sin. The temptation itself, and even the feeling of temptation, is not sin. You might feel discouraged or even guilty if you have certain desires. Or if you feel tempted. And we need the reminder that to be tempted and even to desire and struggle through temptations in this life is not sinful in itself. That can help us as we face possible discouragement or as we have vulnerabilities to self-pity. It can also help us in counseling and seeking to help one another. Because if your brother or sister in Christ comes to you about something they're struggling with, you don't want to heap a greater burden on them than they already have. If they're going through temptation, don't quickly jump to the conclusion that they must be in sin. 
Maybe they're just wrestling and they just need your prayer. Or maybe you need to unpack that more and see where they're at. Just like we don't want to diminish the pain of trials when we try to comfort someone, we also don't want to diminish the struggle of temptations because they're very real and we have to endure them. And so it begins with desires, good desires. God created these desires. And the temptation is the misplaced boundaries of these desires. And that leads to the next step in the sequence of temptation. What follows desire? Number two, enticement. James points out there's a luring and an enticement that takes place. And I'm just going to put enticement to keep it simple. And this is temptation. So number one, there's desire. It's naturally there. And then what comes into the sequence is enticement. Uh, This pulling past the boundaries. God has given you desires, but He's also given a plan and a blueprint for those desires and boundaries. And the enticement is to be lured away from them. That word, that lured away, assumes going past boundaries. You're in a good, fine place as God made you with desires as a human, and now you're enticed to look over the line and see perhaps another place for those desires. By the way, there's still not sin involved. Sin isn't come into the sequence yet. We're still in temptation. Because these are just the initial steps. In James's mind, these initial steps happen before the sin happens. Because they're still just desires. It's just an observation. It's just a test coming toward you. You're looking at something that might be a good thing. And note again, God is not identified as the source. It's still us. And we're at the focus in this next step of enticement. Satan and the demons may be involved in the enticing, but it's just interesting that James doesn't want to focus on that. He's looking at you. And he says, you're lured. And then something happens at some point. So far, no problem. You have desires. You presented options outside the good boundaries. But something happens at some point along the way of luring and enticement and crosses a line, and James decides to call this, metaphorically, conception. Or conception of sin. The idea is being conceived, like in the womb. And James connects this with giving birth to sin. They're really kind of the same thing, but they're also a, it's also a two-stage way of explaining it. It begins with conception, then gives birth. And the idea here is that desire, which began good, becomes, at this point, evil desire. I think it's the point where the fish sees the bait, which is naturally good to eat, and maybe considers it, but there's a point where the fish decides, I'm going in, mouth open. Maybe he hasn't bitten it yet, but he's going to. There's an evil desire, and I think this is what is being spoken of in conception. It starts in the mind. It has a place in our hearts where all of a sudden, we love it. It's one thing to see past the boundary. It's another thing to go, well, God did say that, but I think that looks better. That's an indication of our inward corruption. Now, I don't want to over-parse this um, because it's, it's kind of to, all together. But the idea is this begins, as I put in parentheses, in the heart. J.C. Ryle said this, To be tempted is in itself no sin. It is the yielding to the temptation and giving it a place in our hearts which we must fear. 
In fact, I think it can even be argued that this is already the first stage of sin because it is evil desire. I mean, think about what we confess as Christians. We don't believe a person becomes a person at birth. We would say that it goes all the way back through pregnancy to conception. So in the same way that a person is still a person when they're in the womb, I would say sin, even before being born as it's conceived, is still sin. It starts with that evil desire. And then it's inevitable. Now we're not really given a full description here of what crossing that line looks like. But it's safe to assume James is communicating this is the part in the enticement, in the temptation, where your mind shifts from struggle to being set on your choice. The bait of evil is enticing, and conception is the point where your desire to please yourself is exalted above the desire to please God. It's one thing to look objectively and go, God said this and that. That's good for me. That's a good thing. But it's not what God wants. I'm going to choose God's honor. I think conception is where you go, God's honor, yeah, but I'm going for this. And this is inevitable because this reveals the next part of the sequence, which is the birth to sin. And I would say this is sin in action. Now, I don't just mean that sin is only in action. We know that sin is expressed in thoughts, words, and deeds, and attitudes. But I think it's, they're really joined together. Evil desire gives birth to sin, makes us guilty, culpable. We've crossed the line where we're condemned. That's the point being made here. <clears throat> I think he has in mind here the act of sin, our accountability, One speaks of the line crossed as it begins in the heart, as temptation gets a place there, and the other, the manifestation. Jerry Bridges says this. um, He says, Our actions are often savored in the mind long before they're enjoyed in reality. It's that idea of savoring it. That's where it began. The thought life, he says, then is our first line of defense in the battle of self-control. So remember, James isn't just stating this to give a nice lesson about our, our makeup. He's, he's saying this so that you know when you need to be thinking to get out of temptation. You need to get out of it before conception. Which often requires fleeing quickly. Not even letting it be entertained. Not lingering. Praying right away. Going to someone right away. Sin, the conception of sin happens so naturally and often so quickly or you might say so gradually that you don't even realize it. We need to be on the alert in this sequence when we're enticed. So just to review this sequence as you see it on the screen, you have good desire, not yet sin. You're enticed. You're just given options. Then sin is conceived and manifested as it is born. Now, I learn best by examples. I think we're supposed to look at examples. Saying sin is still generic, so I thought I would look at a few different, well, several actually, uh, different sins in Scripture and how this looks. I'm just going to very briefly describe each one because we all have various sins, and you might be tempted to only think of a couple that go in this sequence, but I want to argue that all sin goes in this sequence. So here's some examples of how desire proceeds to sin being born. Hunger is a natural, God-given desire. It's good. Food is good. You should want food. There's nothing wrong with it. But one may be lured to an indulgence of food that is improper. An example, perhaps, maybe there's food that's not yours. You're tempted to steal it. The food is good. Even seeing it and going, that would satisfy me right now. That's just a true concept. It probably would satisfy you. But should you do it? You could sit and linger. At some point, conception will happen where, yeah, I want that more. I don't love my neighbor. I want that. 
Or maybe you don't act on it. You resist, but you coveted it. I wish I could have taken it. Uh, That's sin. Or the Corinthians were selfishly, remember they're feasting together in the Lord's table, and it says each one was going ahead of himself in the feast. That was sin with food, which is a good thing. Or it could be a case of excess, which the Bible calls gluttony. Or you could look at the case of Jesus, who was tempted in a unique way with hunger, and instead of taking matters into his own hands, had to wait for God. You have a good desire, a good thing, alluring, and then there's a point to where sin is past boundaries. What about wine or alcohol? I know that's a, sometimes a controversial topic. I'll just say here because it's Scripture that God made wine to make glad the heart of man. God's Word says that. Jesus had wine. It's even used in the Lord's table in the New Testament. It could be a good thing in a certain moderation, but we know that desire can be lured and become the sin of drunkenness. That would be the abuse of the gift. Sexual desire is a good in itself. God made it in the garden and in, within marriage. You can be lured outside these God-given boundaries and be tempted to, to lust or sexual immorality. Desire for money and earthly possessions is good. They're not bad in themselves. If you're in a business, you should want to make a profit. It's good to desire buying a home or groceries or clothing, things you need. It's even good to desire recreation. They're, they're good things. But there can be a point where desire is lured to make these things idol- idolatry and making them everything. And the love of money is prohibited in Scripture. Giving them an exalted place. Greed is a sin. Or perhaps you don't have any, and anxiety about not having them is your sin. Discontentment. So something good can become something outside and conceived in bare sin. It's good to desire friendship. God made us social creatures. We could desire companionship and friendship, but you could be lured in that desire to settle for bad company and have a bad influence upon your life. Perhaps you're a social person who loves conversations and you seek to have those conversations with others and you're lured in that good thing to have conversation about life and society and all the things going on But there are things that God says not to do. Do not gossip. Do not lie. Don't boast. So something good can turn into something bad. Perhaps you love solitude. Not talking to people. Solitude isn't a bad thing in itself. Jesus would draw away sometimes to have solitude and when he would go to prayer. But you can be tempted in there to isolate yourself and and forsake the assembling of the body. It's good to desire rest. Rest is a God-given gift. There's a time for it. Jesus rested. But that desire for rest can have a point where sin conceives and it could lure you into laziness. How about some noble, godly desires? You look at the evil in the world and you just indignantly, even angrily desire justice and righteousness. Anger itself can have a righteous place. Jesus was angry. The, the prophets, the, even Paul, was angry. But you know how quickly that one turns. Uh, anger, anger and godly indignation, and that desire for justice can quickly turn to a spirit of hatefulness or, or perhaps it could turn into revenge in some cases. Unforgiveness. Self-righteousness. It's good about the family structure. There's some in this room who are under the authority of parents in the household. It's a good thing that God made to become more of an individual and to desire independence. That's a good thing. To be desiring to be responsible and to, be, to have independence is, is God-given. But that desire, can, you can be lured to misplace 
those expressions for independence by turning it into defiance of your parents and dishonoring those in authority over you. And that would be outside the will of God. Or parents can have a good desire to control their household, keep it under control, uh, protect them. That's a good thing. You should have that good desire to control your household and, and to keep boundaries that are good and safe. But how quickly in the flesh that could turn at times into an oppression or, or what he, Ephesians 6 calls exasperation of your children. Think of leaders in general, whether it's husbands or leaders of a business or of a church or of a nation. You could have a good desire to lead with strength and to lead well. It's a good desire. Power is not a bad thing in itself, but you know how power often goes in sinners. Power itself can become corrupted. Leaders can be drawn away and enticed and use that power for their own selfish ends. It could lead to authoritarianism of different kinds. Uh, The list can go on and on. We can go through all the sins in Scripture. I think they all are varied and different and they hit us in different ways, but they all have a sequence. And that's where sin, it's really getting to the heart of sin, trying to get something good the wrong way. They begin with desire, and somewhere along the way of, of an enticement, it can even be a quick moment of enticement, sin is conceived and gives birth to sin. And James wants you and I to understand this. Especially under trial, you and I are vulnerable to this. You need to beware of sin in this progression as you have desire, as you have enticement, you need to know the way out. And at this point, I actually want to remove that pin from earlier. Remember, we put that pin in the Jesus question. And just briefly go over, how was Jesus, as the God-man, tempted? Where does He fit in this flow? Now, I'm going to start off by saying we cannot totally grasp this. I'm not going to say, oh, now it all makes sense. It's it's going to still be beyond our understanding because the incarnation surpasses us. But I think the sequence here in James actually gives us some light on the topic, particularly in those first steps that are not sin in temptation. We know that Jesus was tempted yet without sin. So first of all, Jesus was God, very God, and man, very man. That means he had real human desires. So we know he's in the desire category. He had real desires like you and I have desires. He took that on in the incarnation. He wasn't a superhuman in the sense of beyond what we feel. And that's important to keep in our theology. He had Real God-given desires for humans, though not ever trespassing to evil desires. He could feel desires for the things we mentioned, for food and for rest and for wine and so forth. Jesus could also be given propositions to go outside the boundaries that His Father gave. And feeling the desires for good things, and I would say authentically be enticed because those are good things that satisfy wants and needs. Example, he's tempted with bread. Bread is good. He was famished. He was hungry. That's a good desire. Satan offers, turn these stones to bread. Now Jesus could look at that objectively, and yes, if he were to turn those stones to bread, that would feel great right now. It would satisfy my stomach. My body would be rejuvenated. It would be a good thing to eat right about now. I think Jesus could feel that. He could look at that option. But somewhere in that, Jesus never crossed over to, but this is better than honoring God. Satan would offer it, And Jesus, knowing that the Father had a time for him to eat, and it was not then, 
Jesus could respond to Satan, yes, Satan, that food. I, I could eat bread. I could really go for it. But man does not live on bread alone. But every word that comes from the mouth of God. And he resists. That there wasn't a tug toward evil. There was still the honor of God the Father in mind. He loved the boundaries God gave him. God the Father gave him. But there was nothing wrong with feeling a yearning even for that option because it was a good thing. So in the sequence we just laid out, where does Jesus fit? Somewhere along the way, we know that someone crosses the line in their desire for sin where it becomes evil desire or what James calls conception. And I would say it's just before that point that Jesus never crossed. And so I would put here on the chart right there before conception, is where Jesus never crosses over. I might even put the line right before the three. I think he went all up until the furthest point he could be tempted, yet he never had in his mind the honor of the Father exalted above what he wanted. He doesn't cross over. Sin is never conceived in him. He could desire... He could be enticed. That's what temptation is. And he was tempted. But not by loving evil. Always short of conception. And that's the key with God and His nature in verse 13. Remember, He's not tempted with evil. Jesus didn't have a natural inclination to, I could really use evil. He didn't love evil going outside God's boundaries. And I think that's the key. With God's nature in verse 13, He can't be tempted with evil. And Jesus, even in temptation, never had the conception of sin. He never would prefer it above God. And I think that's an important distinction in understanding uh, His human nature as it corresponds with His divine nature. It was very real. The desires were real. He went through the human experience. He had trials and temptations, yet 100% dedicated to the will of God. His Father's business. And even in saying that, we need to not diminish the struggle it was for Him. We shouldn't diminish that Jesus went through these desires which were strong and real and that He could look at the option on the other side and consider them with a struggle. In other words, the temptation could be, well, yeah, he's, he's God. He's, he didn't really, it wasn't really temptation. He doesn't really know what I'm going through because he's God. Of course he's not going to sin. And the Bible says that's not the way you should think about Jesus. Rather, he can sympathize with you because he went through it. In fact, it can be argued, and I think is correct, he experienced temptation in a more full and intense way than you and I ever will. Because you and I never feel the full force of temptation in this life because we fall so many times. We give in to it. You don't get the full force of a temptation by giving in. You feel the full force when you overcome it. And Jesus overcame temptation his whole life. So you could argue by never falling into temptation, he actually got the full throttle of what what Satan can throw at him his whole life and emerged victorious. So he can sympathize more than anyone ever could. C.S. Lewis actually explains this even more insightfully, and I'm not going to improve upon what he said. I'm going to just share these few sentences that Lewis says regarding Christ and temptation. I know it's a paragraph, but it's worth it. Lewis said this, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the army by fighting against it not by giving in. You find out the strength of a wind 
by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because He was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. End quote. I love that. What a sympathetic high priest we have in Jesus. He really could stand next to you in trial and in temptation and say, I understand. As Hebrews 4.16 says, He was tempted in all points as we are, yet without sin. And so you and I, James says, need to consider this crossing of the line very seriously. If we're called to be like Christ and He never gets into conception, we need to make strategy and plan in our spiritual warfare how we won't fall. We need to, to watch and pray as He told His disciples when they were tempted. Well, James isn't done with the sequence. He could have ended right there, but James wants you to see where the sequence continues. Should you consider to bypass enticement and continue to let sin conceive? He gives a sober warning. He says this, when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. The next step in the sequence, unrepentant sin. I would interpret Fully grown, meaning a life of unrepented sin. It's not just falling into sin like we all backslide as Christians and come back and fall again and come back. This is the person who lives in sin or lives with a certain sin, unwilling to give it up. True Christians backslide, but what distinguishes them from the world is they persevere in holiness. They're they're being sanctified. They, they put sin to death by degree. And the warning from James is that if you never endure, you continue to pursue evil desire after evil desire, sin after sin, you will fully grow without repentance and experience death like the fish on the hook. And that's the end of the apostate. And the end is death. Sin, when it is fully grown, given its full unrepented pursuit, leads to the opposite of what verse 12 said when he promises the crown of life. The result is not the acceptance and reward of Jesus. It is condemnation. Jesus said He'll say to many people, I never knew you. Depart from Me, you who practice lawlessness. And this is a theme in James. He argues over and over. He says, you know, don't be a hearer of the Word and not a doer. Don't say you have faith, but don't have works. Endurance and follow-through in repentance and in seeking to, to grow in maturity, this is part of the work of God in you as a Christian, even through life's tests. Don't, don't play games with God. Don't presume upon Him to, to let you keep any sin and you'll make it on the other side. Beware of sin. Flee sin. As John Owen put it, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And so that, that's the danger to consider in this progression or regression. This downward spiral is that it ought to sober us to see that sin is deadly. Or like I heard one preacher say, the warnings of judgment are not meant to, to scare us to death. They're meant to scare us to life. Wake up. Flee sin like it's going to kill you because it will. That's the negative motivation that James is giving to back up in the sequence and don't let sin fully grow and bring death. 
And James could have ended there on that sober note and made his point about temptation. But the Holy Spirit, through James, decided to also give us a positive motivation. And I'm going to close very briefly with this final point from verses 16 through 17. It's my shortest point, but it sort of adds to this, and it is the sham of temptation. Verses 16 through 17. James continues, Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Temptation is a sham in the first place. Note, he didn't say, don't be deceived. You might expect him to say, don't be deceived based on what I said. Sin can kill you. He did say that already. But he says something even better. He says, don't be deceived. God gives every good thing. This is one of the most precious things to be told in the battle of our minds when we encounter tests. It's an encouragement to remember the goodness of God. Because that's ultimately what we're doubting when we turn away from Him. That's what we're ultimately deceived from seeing. James says, don't be deceived. Every good gift, every pleasure, every enjoyment, everything you would want is made by God in its place. I want you to think about what that means in relation to what we said earlier about all these good desires that go wrong. They're all good things. Rest, food, wine, marriage. All these things are good And there's something that he made for humanity. And James says, the Father of lights. He's hearkening back to God as the good creator. And this is what exposes that temptation is a sham. This is a profound point. What he's actually saying is, only God can create good things. That temptation on the platter was not created by Satan. Satan can't create. He can only twist. He can only distort. He can only spoil what is already created good. God creates. Satan twists. Every sin is something that God made and blessed and put boundaries around. And all sin does is distort it and, and repackage it and it removes God's boundaries and standards. But it's not a new product. It's a scam. It's a fraud. And we need to be told this. Don't, don't be deceived. Because no one wants to be deceived. No one here wants to be scammed or defrauded. And this is a way to wake us up. Open your eyes. Whatever you want, whatever you're desiring in that temptation, what is it? Because God made it in its place. What you're settling for is actually less than... You're actually, your desires for pleasure are too weak, John Piper would say. Or I think Lewis somewhere else has a, an analogy of a, a boy playing in mud and he's offered a vacation at sea and he's like, no, I'm good with the mud. He has no idea how better the offer is being given. That's what we do when we are considering temptation. God made something good and we're looking at the counterfeit product. It's the same way the serpent deceived Eve. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree? It was an accusation of God's goodness. And note in that example, Satan didn't create the tree and the fruit in the first place. But secondly, God was so generous with all the trees in the garden. But she was tempted, and Adam was tempted to doubt the generous goodness of God. That is what they could not see. And it's what you and I, in enduring temptations, need to remember how good our God is. When you're tempted in enduring temptations, Remember these three things that James gives. Understand the source. It's in you. Understand the sequence. 
and where sin and where it leads, where sin comes and where it leads to death, and consider and remember the sham of temptation. God made every good thing. And you may not have access to every good thing He made, but remember that it does reflect the goodness of God, who as the giver is superior to any gift. And to desire Him will always be better than anything temptation gives. I'll close by just bringing this full circle to the, to the full scope of how we ought to respond when we endure both trials and temptations in this life. Though the pain and the struggles are real, consider it full joy. Because your God is good and He is worthy of your steadfast faith. Let's pray. Father, we need Your help. We need Your help to endure temptation. As You taught us to pray, would You deliver us from evil? Evil from without, but Lord, evil from within. Would You help us and conform us more to the image of Christ, who, though tempted in all points, always sought to please His Father. As You test Your children, as You test us, would we uh, go past the test, Lord, and be steadfast. And may You receive glory in life's trials and temptations. All for Your honor. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.